0: All right. Good morning. How are y'all doing? Good, good. My name is Caleb Burchett. I'm the Student Ministry Director here at Fellowship. So excited to be here with you guys this morning. We are going to be continuing our series titled Eclipse. We've been going through the book of Philippians, all right? And I want to get right into it this morning. So we've learned over the past few weeks what an eclipse is, right? An eclipse is when we take something very large, like say this back wall, and let's say it represents something good, like joy. But we take something very small. We've seen Fred hold up a tennis ball before. And you hold the tennis ball up in front of the wall, and something so small can block all of the joy that's coming from the back wall. And the reason, and the reason this happens is not because of where you're sitting this morning. It's because of perspective, And we see this, you know, when the sun and the moon will come around and block it. It's the same way in our life, and I believe that we have different eclipses in our life that can block the joy in our hearts, all right? So today's eclipse is called When I Am Better Than You, all right? And that's what we're going to be looking at. So I will start by saying that I have no right to teach on this subject today. We are going to be talking about humility, all right? So if you're a close friend of mine and you're in here this morning, you're probably thinking, okay, that's kind of funny. Caleb's, you know, gonna be teaching us about humility this morning. I was telling some some friends and they were like dogging on me a little bit about it. But I wanna say, you know, Fred asked me to teach today and I think the Lord has been trying to teach me and grow me through this process as well, all right? And let me say this, that in all honesty, having reflected on this. I believe that humility can be one of the greatest personal failures in my life. So I just want to be able to be open and upfront with that about you guys. And I want to say this. I do not claim to be humble. I do not claim to have been humble. And I'm convicted of my pride. And I am a man by God's grace who is pursuing humility. And I think it's important that today when we go into Philippians chapter two, we look at the person of Jesus because he is humble. All right. And my hope is that the Lord can use me through my own failures to be able to reach you guys on the subject of humility. So with that being said, I still have to teach on the subject because it's in the Bible. Uh, And before we learn about humility, I think it's important for us to take a look at pride and line up humility right next to pride and see what the differences are. All right. So I want to go through and list a couple facts about pride. Pride is your greatest enemy. Number one, you know, you need to know that pride is your greatest enemy enemy. But in the same sense, on the opposite end of the spectrum, humility is your greatest friend. Pride is demonic and satanic. Yes, very scary to say out loud. But, you know, if you read Isaiah and you go through and read the Bible, you know, you know that Satan was originally an angel living in heaven with the Lord. And it was because of his own pride that he was separated from God and sent on earth. And then we see our first parents, Adam and Eve, and it was through pride that we have sin today. So pride is demonic and satanic. Pride is about comparing ourselves to other people. Who who there is with me on that one? Come on. Comparing yourself to other people? Yep, that's pride right there. You know, we tend to pick on people who we feel are less than us, right? Less intelligent, less successful, less popular, less attractive, because it's easy, But humility is continually comparing ourselves to Jesus Christ, not other people, all right? And if you struggle with pride, compare yourself to Jesus. And trust me, that will help. You might be the smartest person you know, but next to Jesus, you're not that smart. You might be the most successful person you know, but next to Jesus, you're not actually that successful, all right? So stop comparing yourselves to other people and compare yourself to Jesus. Next, pride covets the success of other people. I'm I'm here on this one, too. You know, when, we, when other people succeed, you know, we become jealous and we envy other people. Uh, And that's why sometimes we'll critique people when they succeed. We see people doing great things, and we like to find what is wrong with what they're doing and and point it out to them. And it's because we're jealous, and that comes from pride. But humility allows us to not become jealous over other people, but over the success of other people, but to celebrate it because of what God is doing in their lives and how awesome it is that he's working through them, all right? So to rejoice in it and be glad for God's grace shed upon their lives. Next is pride is about me. Pride is about me. It's about what I want, what I need, what I think, what I feel. It's about what I declare. It's about what I deserve, right? But humility is about Jesus, and it's about other people, all right? Humility allows someone to be selfless, whereby, you know, their natural inclination, our own human nature, would be to remain selfish. Pride is about my glory. Do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? Do you respect me? Do you honor me? Do you praise me? Do you like me? Do you want to be like me? Humility is about the glory of Jesus Christ. Instead, it should be, do you love Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you honor Jesus? Do you respect Jesus? Do you want to be like Jesus? Next, pride leads to arrogance. Cockiness, smugness, and it's repugnant. Pride leads to arrogance, but humility leads to confidence, and confidence in a good way. Confidence meaning I won't deny my convictions. I won't disagree with scripture. I won't dishonor God. I'm confident in what is right and what is wrong. I am confident in what is true and what is false. And I'm confident in what God has created me to be and what he is doing in my life. All right? And those statements are not arrogance. They are confidence that comes from humility. The point of pride is independence. It's independence. You know, we see this in Satan, I mentioned before, right, who wanted to be separated by God because he wanted to be independent. He wanted to be number one. And we see this as sinners in our own lives. We want to live independently from God doing what we want. Humility is not about independence. It's about dependence and not just from Jesus But it's about acknowledging that we're created and he's our creator and that we are dependent on God for love and grace and mercy. And we are are dependent on our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ for the same reasons, knowing, full knowing that we cannot do this walk on our own. All right. They acknowledge their dependence on God and fellow brother and sisters in Christ. Next, pride is backing all of our sin, all of our sin. Strings from pride. And I believe that's true that under all sin, pride is right there at the top. And that pride is the root sin that leads to fruit of sin and more sin in our lives. Which would mean that conversely, on the opposite end of the spectrum, humility is the mother of all joy. You have pride on one end and you have humility on the other end. And that's what Paul is going to teach us today, this week in our scripture. That humble people are the only ones who truly have the possibility of on this earth being happy, of experiencing joy that we get talking about in the book of Philippians, all right? Pride is something that you and I can achieve in this lifetime. Think about it. Pride, it's all around us. It's in everything we're doing. We can achieve that in this lifetime here on earth right now. We can be proud. We can achieve that objective Humility is something that we must continually be pursuing, something that we really can't achieve in this lifetime. Humility is not something that we can fully grasp right now on earth. And you know, that's why we must pursue humility vigorously in every step All through our life. That's why no one can say, I am proud to report that I am now humble. You know, that wouldn't make sense to say. You can't say it. You can't write a book saying, now that I have achieved humility, here are my seven steps on achieving humility. It doesn't doesn't work that way. But all we can say is, by God's grace, I am a proud person pursuing humility humility, all right? And now the reason we are so proud is because our very nature as fallen sinners is to be proud, to be rebellious, to turn our backs from God. And additionally, we live in a world that absolutely encourages nothing but selfish pride. All right, I want to talk about the world for a second. I mean, if you think about it, the entirety of Western civilization where we live is all based on pride, not humility. Next time you're listening to an athlete during an interview or a musician or a celebrity or a politician, ask yourself, are they advancing the virtue of pride or humility? You know, this goes all the way back to the time of the Greeks, before the birth of Jesus and all the way to present, we see this. And why, this is why this message, this message, book of Philippians chapter two is so great for us because we see it throughout the entire Bible all the way to now in history. And even the cultural narratives and the stories which we see when we look at our history textbooks, when we're in school, we're in learning, we see that the downfall of man has all come and strung from pride. All right. And my point is this. It's not, it's not factual. It's not a hard yes or no. But outside of scripture, outside of God's word, the Bible. Humility is pretty hard to find. We might see it some places, but humility is hard to find, all right? It is to not be encouraged. It is to not be informed. We don't teach it. Our world, it exists for self-help, self-esteem, self-love, and self-actualization. Not for humility, not for the love of God and others. So as we get into today's text, we are going to see Paul reach above the status quo of the world we are living today, above the status quo of the, of the people of the Philippi in the church that he's writing to, and he's going to teach us a great lesson on humility. He's going to give us an eternal perspective on something that we only see in the world where we are living today, all right? So let's turn to the pages of Philippians. If you have your Bible, uh, we're gonna be in Philippians chapter two. If you have the Bible app, you can find today's text under the events tab. Uh, And if you're using a Bible in the pew, we are on page 816. All right. So today we are going to discover something that is absolutely countercultural, something that is not in the norm of what we have been learning, something that we do not see in today's standard, in today's world. And this is what it is, instruction on humility. Paul gives us a great exhortation through this passage, an encouragement, an instruction regarding humility. In Philippians 2, 1 through 11, that's where we're going to be today. It is the centerpiece of this book. We've been doing this series, Eclipse. We're going through the book of Philippians. We are at that halfway point. We are right in the smack middle of the book, all right? And everything leads to this passage and flows from it, all right? And furthermore, it is one of the most, if not the most significant passages of the New Testament, when you are looking at the character and the person of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. So this is a very exciting piece of scripture, and we're going to start with the first four verses of chapter 2. A little context. Paul is writing to his friends at the church of Philippi, whom he had not seen in four years because he is under house arrest. All right? So read with me. Philippians 2, 1 through 4, it says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, Any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. So here's Paul's first point, verses one through four. Nothing builds a church stronger and more sure than humility. But on the other end, nothing breaks and destroys a church faster and more certainly than pride. All right, because he's writing to a church. You know, and, you know, as a leader in the church, you know, I see this. And and this church is just like every other church, very frail. You know, we are strong at heart. And I believe that this is a healthy, growing, incredible church, incredible body of Christ to be a part of but we are frail nonetheless. You know, We see this all across America, I'm not just talking here at fellowship, um, but health is gained so slowly, but it can be lost so quickly. All it takes is one prideful mistake. And over Christmas break, one of my friends from college who was visiting into town, you know, he asked me a question and he said, he said this, Caleb, you are young, you are fresh out of college, you took your dream job, you are playing a part in a growing ministry, and you live in a beautiful city. How do you remain humble? And I didn't know how to answer, and that was because of my own pride. I, like, you know, I just kind of brushed it off. I was like, oh, you know, you know, God works in the ways, you know, blessed, whatever. But I didn't know how to answer, and, you know, I later reflected on this question. And just recently, when I was, you know, preparing for this message today, you know, I think I found my answer. I am a kite, and Jesus is a hurricane. I read it online probably found it on Pinterest. I am a kite, and Jesus is a hurricane, all right? So think about it with me. Sounds dumb, but it would be ridiculous for me to boast on my own ability to fly, right? Because in a hurricane, even a broken, frailed, failed, ripped apart kite can still fly pretty well. It can still fly through the sky, even at its worst point. And I believe what has happened is that Jesus has showed up like a hurricane in my life, When I was not ready and nothing happening in my life was of my only of my own doing. It was only through the grace of God. Paul says in this text, he says, pride works itself out. But then he goes on to say in rivalry and conceit. All right. Rivalry, meaning you're in competition for resources, status, jobs, title. Right. Rivalry with other people. But conceit, meaning you're jealous of other people. And with the context he's writing, he says you're jealous of other people in the church. He's writing to a church. He's not writing to the secular world and our businesses where we work. No, he is writing to the church, the bride of Christ. And this is a Christian warning for the church. So Paul says, do nothing out of rivalry. Do nothing out of conceit. Rather, the church must have a posture of Humility. And humility, he defines for us as this. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interest of others, the people around us, our brothers and sisters in Christ. So basically, Paul is saying, Proud people only care about what they care about. Humble people think of others. Proud people think of themselves. And he's telling us, he is instructing us to not be proud where we are sitting today, all right? And Paul says that the humble people are given this insight of God where they have a broader perspective, all right? We've talked about eclipse. we talked about depending on your perspective, this joy could be robbed because it's covered by something dark, all right? They might have been covered. Their eclipse might have been covered, but Paul, in his writing today, is trying to change the perspective of the people of the church, all right? And here's the deal. He's writing to these people, And I think this is us sometimes, you know, sometimes I think in a church, and I know this for myself, we can be single issue voters who only care about our campus, right? You might be going to Weaverville and you're like, you know what? I don't care about Fellowship Asheville anymore. I'm only about Weaverville now, right? Or you might only care about the service you go to. I go to 1045. It's way better than nine o'clock, right? Or you're a leader and you only care about your mission. You only care about the ministry you're working in. That'd be like me saying, you know, I'm, you know, I do student ministry here. I only care about student ministry. I only care about Sunday nights. I don't even show up on Sunday mornings, right? So we have these prideful thoughts. We care about our gifts and our feelings, and we want our needs and demands met. But Paul is saying, no. Who cares about everyone else? Do you know who I am? That is Jesus. He is saying, stop caring about yourself. Look to the one who gives us grace. All right. So yes. This doesn't mean you'll always agree with the leaders and the decisions being made and things happening in the church. But this doesn't mean you sort of quietly, passively push it away either. But it does mean that your methods and your motives and your tone and your tactics and your attitudes and your actions count. Everything you do counts for something and the ends don't always justify the means. You know, I would have been someone up until very recently in my life, very recently in my life, I would said, well, you know, I know my tone was bad, and I know my tactics were bad, and my attitude was pretty poor, and my actions weren't that great, but my objective was good. So don't the ends justify the means? But Paul is saying, no, it's the motives and the method and the mission. All three count. Everything about our decision, about our minds, about our thoughts count towards the mission. All right? And you you know, and this is and this is the conclusion that I've came to, that you can't pursue a good thing in a bad way and expect God to be well pleased. You can't come to church with the poor motives of what things are happening, and you can't expect God to be well pleased. All right? In addition to a good cause, you must have the humility to go about it in a good way. Now, the only way we can truly continually see our pride is to look to Jesus. So I I would ask you this. Take this time for yourself, just one second. In your mind, say, am I humble or am I proud? Am I humble or am I proud? It's a trick question. Because we must all say I'm proud. Rephrase the question for you. Are you pursuing humility or not? See, that's the question we should be asking. That is possible. It is possible by God's grace to be pursuing humility. And I only and the only way to pursue humility is that you and I would not work out of rivalry and conceit like Paul is talking about and thinking that we're smarter than everyone else and that we would join together as the body of Christ with good motives to achieve the mission. All right. And if we look to humility and we look to Jesus and in looking to Jesus, we see our own pride and he helps us deal with it. That is humbling. All right, so we're gonna continue. Verse five through seven, Paul is gonna lift up Jesus as the humblest person who has ever lived or will ever live. Follow along with me, verse five. It says, have this among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not equally with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You know, what he says here is this. No one is more humbler than Jesus. No one is more humble than Jesus. And Jesus demonstrates this in what we call the incarnation. All right, incarnation, it's a theological term. Incarnation is when God became a man. Jesus takes on a human body. And what he's saying here is that in becoming a man, Jesus is the most humble humble person who has ever lived because Jesus is God. I mean, become a man, Jesus became a man. I mean, seriously, y'all think about this. Our creator, the one who created everything in the world we live in, entered into creation. Timeless, eternal, forever, entered into time. Omnipresent, everywhere, entered into a place. Jesus was in one place now. Seated on a throne, Choses to be born in a barn. Surrounded by angels in glory comes to be disrespected, mocked, and abused by sinners. Living in heaven comes to live in poverty on earth and to suffer as the man of sorrows. Are you kidding me? Jesus was the humblest person to ever live because he entered into the body of a human, all right? And what Paul is saying is that in Jesus, the humblest person who has or will ever be, and we are not saying that Jesus ceased to be God when he became a man. I want to get that clear. You know, rather what he said is that he set aside his rights and chose to become a man. And he he set aside the rights to always, to have his divinity, his divine attributes. It doesn't mean he didn't still possess them you know, we, see, we saw Jesus perform many miracles, but he didn't always access them like he used to. And while on earth, Jesus was still God. He was worshiped as a God. He declared himself to be God, and he forgave sin and performed miracles, which only God can do. But Jesus was still on earth as a man in the body of a man. But God does not grow and change, and so Jesus set his divine attributes to the side so that he can grow from a little boy to a man and to die on the cross, for us. Jesus was all-knowing, growing up, right? All-knowing. He's God. He is all-knowing. He still, learned, he still had to learn to walk and to write and to talk. but he's all-knowing. still having the right to be worship of a God, still having the attributes of God, but he humbled himself, choosing instead to live with us like us, but without the sin. All right, And this doesn't mean that Jesus lost anything. we became a human being. That God would come into human history the humble way to do and to live a humble life. All right? And furthermore, not only is Jesus the humblest person, but i want to shift our gears a little bit. He wasn't only the humblest person, but as we look to our history books, he performed the single most humblest act in the history of the world. Paul articulates this in verse 8. Let's continue in our scripture. It says, verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, one of the reasons I know the Bible is true and I believe the Bible, because I would say, like, if we created the Bible, right, we probably wouldn't create a humble God like Jesus. We would have our own desires put first. But I read verses like this, and it changes my mind. It changes my perspective, right? Our God is the humblest God. And one of the most distinguishing features of God in the Bible is humility. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, that's powerful. And here's what Paul is saying. Jesus is the humblest person, and his death on the cross is the humblest event and act in the history of the world, and practically, This is what it means for me personally and probably for y'all too. I murdered God. In my own pride, I murdered God. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he died in place for me and he died in place for you. Romans 5.8 says it this way, but God chose his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God left glory and came humbly to earth. God left his throne and was born in a barn. God left being worshipped by angels continually to be disrespected by people like us. And how did I and how did we respond to God in our lives and the way we live? We murdered him. That's how proud we are. Not only that Jesus, who was God, allowed me, allowed us to murder him. That's how humble he is because he allowed it to happen, full knowing it would happen. And in dying, he is so humbled that he died for me that I might have salvation and I might have love and grace and reconciliation and be able to live eternally with him in heaven. Not only did Jesus humble himself in becoming a man, he humbled himself to die on a cross. And in dying on the cross, he died in such a way to be the substitute for my pride so that I can be one with him, all right? And the great exchange is this. All of my sin goes on Jesus. I give it to him, and his perfection is given to me. My condemnation, what I deserve, I give it to Jesus, and his salvation comes to me. My separation from God, who I am on earth, my sorrows, goes to Jesus. And his reconciliation and his grace is free, and it's given to me. That my pride is laid on Jesus and the exchange happens. His humility is given to me. The pride that we all possess, that we're dealing with in our lives, we just hand it to Him and He gives it right back to us, but He gives us humility instead. That I murdered God and God was so humbled as to allow me to murder Him, and God is so good that in dying for me, He forgives me and gives me a new life and forgives all my sin. Guys, this is mind blowing. This is a simple Sunday school lesson, but this is mind blowing when you think about it. When you think about the exchange, what he has done for us, it's absolutely astonishing. And then Paul goes on to say that in the name of Jesus is more important than anything, and that the name of Jesus is the most beautiful name of all. All right? And that basically, and this is because as fully man and fully God, Jesus is the only mediator who can reconcile us, proud sinners to our humble and good God in heaven. All right, so Paul says this. There is only one mediator between man and God. That is man Christ Jesus. God became a man to live humbly, to die on a cross for sinners, to reconcile with God. And as a result of that, Paul says, the name of Jesus is the name that we should exalt. The name of Jesus is the one thing that we should sing. The name of Jesus is the name that we should live for that the name of Jesus is the name that we should have put above any other name. Check this out in verse nine, the way he declares this. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. So we're not talking about the humble incarnation now, but also the glorious exaltation of God and of Jesus. Jesus is the eternal God. And from eternity past, eternity's past, he ruled in exalted glory. He humbled himself and came into human history for life, death, burial, and resurrection. Having achieved salvation through his death on the cross, having conquered sin, and still loving us. And then Jesus ascended back into heaven, all right? So today, if you and I were to see Jesus, we would see him exalted in glory because of this, because of his humble act. We would see him as revelation to us, seated upon a throne, ruling over all. And if you're here and you don't know who God is, his name is Jesus, and this is what he's done for you. Today is a great day to consider a relationship with him, to reconnect with God, because he loves you. This exchange can happen at any moment, all right? And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior. Jesus is the greatest name. And this is powerful because we see this in verse 9, right? But a little history lesson. In the day where Paul is writing, the greatest name was Nero. He was the Roman emperor of the time. And he ruled over Rome and the greatest empire on earth, the biggest empire, right? And, you know, Philippi, where he's writing the book of Philippians, is a Roman city. And, you know, part of the practice of these cities that were in Rome is that they had to bow to Nero and declare his name as the Lord and Savior. That was a law that people had to follow. At every sporting event, every political meeting, every rally, you had to bow down and say, Nero, the Lord and Savior. So anytime the citizens gathered, they would bend their knee and they would raise their voices to declare that. And Paul is writing to these people who are having to deal with that. Paul's in prison when he's writing this because of this very reason, all right? And Paul says, there is a name that is above every other name. There is a man who is above that man. That means that even Nero, in his time when Jesus returns, will have to bend his knee to God and declare him Lord and Savior, all right? So the question is not, will you bend your knee to Jesus and confess an acknowledgement of him that he is the Lord and Savior? No, that's that's, that's very wordy. That's mouthful. But the question is this. Will you do it today as a friend of Jesus, or will you do it then as a foe of Jesus? Will you do it today as a friend of Jesus, or will you do it later as a foe of Jesus? And this brings us to our bottom line. And here it is. Unity requires humility. Unity requires humility. All right? All right. My name really doesn't matter that much. It's the name of Jesus that matters. That matters because Jesus is wonderful. What he has done for us, what he has given to us. Jesus is good. Jesus is loving and glorious and merciful and kind. Jesus is sinless and Jesus is God who became a man who lived humbly, allowed us to murder him and rose in victory and he gave us new life. Jesus is sinless and Jesus is good and he lived humbly for us. So you will be miserable, you will be disunified if you continue to live in the glory of your own name. Paul is calling this church to unity. He wants them to be unified under the name that is above every other name and that is why unity requires humility, all right? So above all of that must be the name of Jesus, which means the right answer to every question is this, will we exalt the name of Jesus in our life? What will make Jesus look good? Because Jesus is good. We must pursue humility so that together we can be unified as the body of Christ. So we can put away, we can change our perspective. All right? So in closing, I want to give you five recommendations. And I share them with you as various ways to clothe yourself in humility and, light and practically in your life. All right? So number one is follow the truth wherever it leads. Follow the truth wherever it leads. If it leads to you're wrong, then follow it, humbly. If it leads to you're fired, then follow it. If it leads to that's not what's best for you, but it's best for all, then follow it. If it leads to you need to apologize, then follow it. Don't defend yourself. Don't always do what's in your best interest, but follow what's in the interest of others, humbly. Follow the truth, wherever it leads. Number two is repent quickly and thoroughly. And this is important for all of us. You know, don't force your repentance to be this ginormous issue where you need to bring other people in to pray with you. And no, just don't make someone pin you down to the ground and make you tap out. No, just tap. Go ahead right now. Say, I sinned. I was wrong. I screwed up. I'm a jerk. Jesus, I'm sorry. That's all it takes to repent quickly and thoroughly. That's all it takes for his grace. Number three, seek and celebrate God's work and through in and through other Christians. God is at work with other Christians, people outside the walls of our church. Look for it, encourage it. I see God is changing you here, growing you here. I see him working through you. Encourage that, lift up your fellow believers. Nurture and encourage God's grace at work in others' lives. I have many friends who actually here in town work at other churches, and they're absolutely killing it. They're doing incredible work for the glory of God and for the kingdom. And we love to be able to work together, and I love to be able to encourage what they're doing. Even though it's not happening in my ministry, I'm still able to see it happen in their ministry. And for that, we praise the Lord, all right? So seek and celebrate God's grace at work through other Christians. Number four, this is a hard one, but listen to scripture more than yourself. Listen to scripture more than yourself. We can lie to ourselves, deceive ourselves, con ourselves, condemn ourselves, justify ourselves. We can do all of those things. But don't listen to yourself so much. Listen to Scripture and said, let Scripture do that for you. God will speak to you truthfully through His Word. That is why it is here for us. Listen to Scripture more than yourself. And lastly, number five, exalt the name of Jesus in all you do. Exalt the name of Jesus in all you do. The right answer to every question is whatever makes Jesus look great, because He is great. Don't do what exalts your name. Don't do and, say what, do and say what exalts the name of Jesus instead. You'll never regret that. You will never regret that. Exalt the name of Jesus in all you do. And I love our church. I love everything about our church. I love working here. I love being able to have relationships with y'all. And I believe that this issue of humility is a defining issue for the next season of our church. We have a lot of times changing right now. We have Fellowship Weaverville right on the horizon. You know, during our Sunday morning, in our different ministers where we serve, in our growth groups, the question is not, will we grow? The question is this, will we grow in humility? And will we grow together in unity? Because remember, y'all, unity requires humility. Let's pray.